0: and counting. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is
1: Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And in just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by the uh, chair of the New York State Democratic Party. That's Jay Jacobs. This is his second stint as the chair of the state party. And he's going to join us to talk about how he is helping lead the Democratic political effort to win state legislative seats, House seats, what's at stake in terms of some of the ballot options and the presidential candidates and some of his general thoughts about the political climate here in New York. All right, well, let's bring on our guest for today. We're very happy to welcome back to the show, Jay Jacobs. He's the chair of the New York State Democratic Committee, which means he's basically helps run the political operation of the New York Democratic Party. Uh, Chair Jacobs, thanks for joining us. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette and Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. Well, thanks for having me. Tell uh, tell us, tell listeners, just a little bit about how you describe your role in a in a big election year like is happening right now. What what do you try to do? What's you know what are the main sort of responsibilities that you see for yourself?
2: Well, I'm trying to raise money to get the resources to the various candidates. You know, once our candidates are selected, which is a big part of what the party does then, you know, you're filling in and helping out each of the individual campaigns and, and directing uh, campaign resources to, you know, the, the most effective uh, use, and meaning that, of course, candidates that are in the tightest races, uh, the most competitive races, where the extra dollar is going to make a difference, well, that's where you're going to try to get your, your money. So I'm trying to do that as well as coordinate, get out the vote efforts, monitoring the early vote, for instance, right now, making sure that things are going smoothly with the boards of elections around the state, and that uh, people are getting their opportunity to vote, and our vote is coming out. So those are generally the things that I'm I'm involved with.
0: Jay, how have both those changed in light of the pandemic? I mean, we can imagine it affecting get-out-the-vote efforts. I'd be curious to know more exactly how. But has the pandemic or the economic fallout affected fundraising?
2: Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, definitely, you know, people who used to give a lot more, some of them, their businesses have been affected and they've been a little bit more conservative with their, their contributions. But we've been seeing, you know, a steady flow of uh, dollars into the campaign. And I think that, uh, you know, it, the pandemic has made all of the opportunities we used to have to get out. And reach voters, whether it was knocking on their doors or, you know, standing in front of subway stations giving out materials or on the Long Island Railroad platforms, whatever it may be, all of those things uh, just uh, are much more difficult. They're just not happening. So everything is being done by by phone, text, uh, a lot of Zoom calls. You know, one thing I will say that's good about the pandemic. And this is the only thing I can think of is that I get to go everywhere I was in herkimer county uh, uh last week I was up in Erie County yesterday um uh, no traffic, no problem I get onto zoom i'm I'm sitting here doing it from my house and uh everybody gets to see me and, and hear what I have to say and I get to see and hear what they have to say and and that that's easier but uh it's certainly not as effective you know i i i'm I still like the old-fashioned handshaking, look them in the eye, talk to them face-to-face. We can't do any of that right now.
0: Just a quick follow-up on that, Jay. Is, is there unilateral disarmament on that? In other words, are Democratic and Republican candidates and campaigns respecting social distancing, being careful about in-person campaigning to the same degree, or are you yielding some territory on that?
2: Well, I, I, I don't see much of it from the Republicans either, uh, but there is some uh there's some candidates on the Republican side that are knocking doors uh, more than we are. Uh, not to say that no Democrats are, but very few. I, I, honestly, I don't think in this environment that's what voters are clamoring for right now. And they don't know that it's going to make that much of a difference. So, you know, where, where we might be seeding a little bit of territory on this, we're a little bit more, I'd say, responsible uh, than, than my counterparts on the other side. Uh, I just... Um, I just don't think that's going to that's going to make the difference in this kind of an election at this time.
1: And so, Jay, when it comes to the many races on the ballot here, um, we were talking in the first segment of the the show about, um, you know, some of what's at stake with the state Senate and the House races in New York. But where are you most focused? Um, Are you most focused right now on trying to. Keep certain house seats democratic. Are you most focused on uh, keeping and expanding the state senate democratic majority? Something else? Where's where's most of your attention right now?
2: Well, I, I think that most of my attention, I'd have to say, would be in the state senate races. Now we've got three congressional seats, democratic congressional seats, which you know are are, uh, are competitive, and we have to defend. Uh, you've got Anthony Brindisi up in the 22nd Congressional, and, uh, Antonio Delgado in the 19th, up in the Hudson Valley area. And then you've got Max Rose right down here in the city. He's Staten Island and a piece of uh, uh, western Brooklyn. And um, that's, I would say, the most competitive. That's a toss-up race. That's the only one that I would say we would have some vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I believe Max Rowe is going to win at the end of the day, but uh, you know he's he's in the fight of his life right now, and and um, and I would say that that's where I've got a concern. And on the other end, of course, we're looking at two potential, three potential pickups. Um, you know, there may be others, frankly. So I don't want to sell anybody short, but the ones that stand out at the moment are uh, Jackie Gordon, who's running in the old Peter King seat. You know, he's vacating the seat. And you've got this fellow, Garbarino, who's, <clears throat> I don't think, picking up any steam at all. And Jackie Gordon's a, a combat veteran, a 29-year veteran. She's a very attractive candidate, uh, and I, I think she stands a very good chance of winning that. So that's our best shot. And you got Nancy Goroff out on the East End um, battling uh, Lee Zeldin, who's a real Trump zealot. So, you know, we've got some potential there. Nancy Goreff's done a great job. And uh, Dana Balter running once again up in CD24 um, against uh, John Katko. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, she came very close in, in 18, and I think she may take him out this time. So those those are the, the Congressionals on the state Senate side. We've got a lot going on. The Republicans are targeting particularly incumbents. um, uh, down on Long Island, so they've targeted three different uh, Long Island incumbents with all sorts of, you know, really harsh false ads that, um, you know, are making an impact. So we've got our, our hands full, you know, trying to make sure we save uh, Monica Martinez, who's in uh, CD uh, SD three uh, out in Suffolk County. Uh, then you've got uh, Jim Goren in uh, SD five uh, on, on the North Shore of both uh, Nassau. And and Suffolk and Kevin Thomas, who I think is the most vulnerable and he's in an SD6 in the center of Nassau County. So we're working on that. Um, Senator Pete Harkham, up, uh, you know, up on the Hudson River, you know, heading upstate has got his hands full with uh, Rob Astorino. And, and then there are a couple of other races. And then we've got you know potential pickups, you know, in upstate New York. You've had a lot of uh, Republican state senators. I think a total of eight, eight state senators uh, statewide of Republicans have decided not to run again. And so we've got some good pickup opportunities, particularly upstate.
1: Do you think, um, Jay, that, that some of what's at play here and some of this vulnerability, and you know, we we even mentioned early on that some of the some of the attacks on Democrats, whether it's around bail reform or some other things, have definitely been misleading or not backed up in the data. But do you think that um you know that in this first session of democratic uh taking, Democrats taking control of the state Senate and therefore having the state Senate, the assembly and the governor's office. Do you think that, um, you know, these elections are sort of showing to some of the New York city Democrats who don't have to worry about general elections that, um, you know, the, the there, there might need to be a reason to be a little more careful when it comes to some of the legislation that's passed in Albany, when it, when it comes to the, the vulnerability of some of the senators that are in swing districts.
2: Well, you know, that was an argument that I made, you know, uh, during session. It's not that the ideas that were promoted or the things that were accomplished were anything other than good. It's just you have to give time to educate the public as to their merits and to um, give them confidence that, uh, you know, some of the things that they might worry about with whatever piece of legislation you're you're passing, the consequences... um, just are, are, are you know, have been considered and, and won't be as, as concerning as as they might at first seem. You know, you have to educate the public. And, and I don't think we did that well enough, though we promoted some really very good things. And, and although we did the bail reform in the first phase, and I think it left some gaping holes, it was the Democratic state senators, particularly the ones on Long Island, that came out and led the charge to fix it and now made a, what is an excellent bail re- Reform or criminal justice reform, I should say, um, uh, change and, and, um, you know, I, I think it's u- universally by, by law enforcement, you know, district attorneys and the like, they're, they're very comfortable with it and everybody thinks it's a lot fairer. So I, I think that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of misleading going on. Look, the Republican playbook every election cycle is the same. I mean, voters are smart. You ought to take, take a look back from the days of flag burning and everything else that they used to, um, Uh, talk about. They either try to scare you or make you angry. That's how they get their vote. Democrats run on hope and optimism. And very often, you know, fear and anger win out. This year, I don't think it's going to happen that way. But you know, that
0: that's what we're contending. Uh, Jay, talk about the presidential race. Uh, Donald Trump losing in New York, but Joe Biden winning in New York state is all but a foregone conclusion. Uh, Do you expect a different proportion in terms of the how the percentages break down this time versus 2016? And how big a factor is Trump and, and how is he playing in some of those competitive congressional districts you talked about?
2: Well, I mean, if we look to history, the Republicans have a real problem. And, I mean, I've been there on the other end as a Democrat when you look to history the same way. When you have a wave election, and a wave election I I would define as an election where the top of the ticket or um, an entire party uh, is, is subject to a rebuke by the electorate, Uh, Then, you know, it's going to be felt all the way down ballot. and There's not much you can do about it. You know, I think about an off-year election where there was nobody running for president. It was 1994. I remember it very clearly. It was Bill Clinton's first off-year election. If you remember, he won in 92, and they had – you know, he did a a, a few things uh, over the first two years. Uh, Democrats had the House and the Senate. It was a huge wave. Mario Cuomo was defeated. Uh, Ann Richards down in Texas lost her gubernatorial seat. Uh, And you lost a whole slew of members of Congress, the Senate. We lost the the House and the Senate. Not one Republican um, in that victory year for the Republicans. Not one Republican incumbent lost. Not one in the whole United States. And it's that kind of a thing that you see in wave elections. Now you take top of the ticket. And you go you go back to um, 64 with Johnson-Goldwater, or 72, um, uh, Nixon-McGovern, uh, you know, those are huge elections. The Reagan win was a, was a big, big win nationwide. And what you see is that you have lots of vulnerable incumbents on the losing parties, uh, losing candidates uh, party being defeated, but very, very few of the challenging party um, or, or the winning party, I should say, uh, suffers losses, and I think they're going to see that here in New York and everywhere else, where Donald Trump is leading them, you know, uh, down a real you know, rough stream right now. I, I, I got to tell you, the the, um, the vote we're seeing, the turnout we're seeing, you know, I, I'm walking. Uh, I went over the weekend to go out to the early voting sites, and I did about uh, nine, ten sites, you know, all through uh, Long Island in particular. And I asked you know, as I went up and down the lines, there were long lines, and some people in Elmont, for instance, waited five hours to vote. But other places it was two hours, hour and a half, whatever. So I'd walk up to folks and I'd say, How long have you been waiting? Again and again, in different sites and I had to laugh each time I got the same answer. People would you know, unprompted yell back four years we've waited. And they didn't they didn't mind waiting on these lines i had a gentleman in elmont say to me i'm getting this vote i don't care if i'm waiting five hours i'm going to vote i'm going to get this over with i mean and that was kind of the sense i'm getting now whether or not you know just the democrats are coming out because the numbers over the weekend were three to one democrat to republican now it's it's getting back to something more normal democrats are still leading substantially but republicans are, are coming out um you know, whether it was just the motivation and, and the, their frustrations coming out so they wanted to stand online, or it's a function of the fact that more Democratic vote is coming out, we won't know just yet until the votes start to get counted. But I, I would tell you from what I'm seeing, and even the fact I take a look at the analysis I get every day, a large number of the Democratic voters and of the um, unaffiliated, the blank voters, are new voters. These are not all your prime or your expected vote. And that I think is disconcerting for the Republicans. It's got to be.
0: One thing that I'm interested in is how much the dynamics of individual races affect uh, the broader argument about, you know, which party people are going to support. And in the Max Rose race, I think he does clearly seem to be worried about the impact of pro-Trump voters in his district. He's talked about his ability to work with the president. um, And he's also spent a lot of time distancing himself from, sometimes in very negative terms, other Democrats, Mayor de Blasio, Speaker Pelosi, other people in kind of the mainstream of his party. Um, When a candidate does that, does that make it harder for you and for others who are interested in building the party statewide and beyond to make the argument that the Democratic Party as a whole, offers something to to voters when a candidate kind of runs as a Democrat, but basically against the party
2: well, you know it, it is more complicated there's no question to it. but you look at Conrad Lamb, who ran in a special election in uh, western Pennsylvania uh, just a couple of years ago and and was also uh, running in the same situation he's running in a district like max rose's that's a, a republican leaning district um, a strong Trump's support there, and he had to distance himself uh, at the same time from a lot of the Democratic issues that, you know, are mainstream in our party. The interesting thing about our party, and I'd have to say probably the Republicans have the same, you know, uh, complexity. The interesting thing is, uh, you know, we have a wide range of um, uh, policies that various uh, elected officials and candidates and the rest choose to run on. The, the the central theme however for all of them is that I, I as i see it as i see it is that the democratic party tends to focus on community on governmental on belief in governmental support for people and and government government's ability to engage and solve problems, where the Republican Party takes the reverse. It's it's much more of the old laissez faire, as they say, um, uh, keep government out, small government, in some cases no government whatsoever. Um, and so, while there'll be differences in how we get it done, I always I always describe it much like. Um, the, um, uh, the, the early American historian Henry Adams once described the presidency. He, he said, uh, it's like the captain of a ship. You need a helm to grasp, a course to steer, and a port to seek. And, you know, we all in the Democratic Party are seeking the same port. Which course we're taking candidate to candidate is going to be a little bit different. But I don't, um, I don't disagree with Max Rose that he, if he's going to win that seat, And in winning that seat, we're going to be able to do bigger things, not all of which are going to be easy for Max Rose to vote for and some of which he can't, but yet his winning is going to help move those issues forward. Then I'm okay with the fact that he tends to magnify some of the things where he's more in step with the mainstream of his district rather than standing up there. And and being so anti-Trump in a pro-Trump district, you take a look at Staten Island. I mean, there's a lot of folks down there who like that guy. And I mean, for the life of me, I can't figure it out. But they do. And and um, you know, if he were to stand up and just you know be in their face about it, well, you might as well just not run a campaign. He wouldn't win.
1: So Jay, let's come back to the state senate now for for a couple minutes. uh well before before I get to my question i guess um what's your worst case uh, scenario in your projections on the state senate it, it, do you do you feel as though worst case the Republicans can take back the majority or is that not even uh, no,
2: possible? So that's not a con- that's not possible really yeah, right. i mean they're in, uh, they're in about as bad a position as as i think i've i've ever seen remember you've got i think the number was eight incumbents not running again you know we have forty uh, um out of uh, sixty three already, so um, there there are twenty um, Republicans and three open Republican seats uh, seats that were held by Republicans who resigned and they're just open so you know you've got um, a number of opportunities, particularly where these popular Republicans have given up seats. In areas that lean democratic now, you go up to areas like in the Rochester area I think we're going to pick up two seats uh, up there mm-hmm. and, and then you know you look at um, down on Long Island uh, that's why they focus there because that's where they've got their best chance and, and they use the bail reform piece in particular they, we've got a, a, a over a million dollars being put in by independent expenditure group of, uh, run by the PBA in, in the city no less they have the audacity to complain that the that the Long Island Democrats are run by the city and de blasio and they make them into puppets, you know, which is nonsense, none of them have even met de blasio, and who's making the commercial and spending the money the million dollars Pat lynch's PBA in the city of New York you know it's the craziest thing well, a I mean, lot of, a lot of his
1: a lot of his members do live on long island um but uh, but I guess that leads me to, to the the question I was getting to, which is especially given the Long Island vulnerability and how popular Governor Cuomo is on Long Island, how, why isn't he doing a bit more in those races to help uh, vulnerable incumbents uh, stick around?
2: Oh, he's doing a lot. Um, I, no, the governor has been on fundraising Zooms. Um, he's given me, you know, the... Uh, the the request to raise money through the state party and and he said "You know, use his name to raise money I've done just that I've been calling and and, and raising money and telling folks governors asked me to call which he did Um, and and so he's been very helpful and he's been giving guidance and and, and strategic uh, advice what he can't do is hold big rallies like Trump does around the country which I know he'd like to do and he's done in the past this environment just won't permit it. But through Zoom and other things, don't, don't uh, I don't want anybody to have the impression the government's not fully engaged in trying to keep the Senate, and uh, and he is, and he's he's doing that not just down on Long Island, he's doing events. Um, again, through Zoom across the state. He's doing one for uh, Jackie Berger, I think, upstate New York candidate t- uh, tomorrow. I, I think uh, Todd Kaminsky tomorrow. I know he's done Gorin and Monica Martinez and certainly Kevin Thomas and Anna Kaplan down here on Long Island. So he's, he's been doing it. Um, and, and I'm in t- uh, conversation with him or his office all the time about the campaign.
0: So one of the elections kind of within the election is the battle by some of the minor parties in New York State, especially Working Working Families Party, to retain their ballot status. They obviously, under new rules, have to get 130,000 votes or 2% of the total. It's likely to be the latter, given the massive turnout we're seeing. Uh, Do you think WFP is going to get there? And what do you think of some of their tactics? I know there was a mailer... Uh, came to my house this week featuring Elizabeth Warren uh, promoting the WFP line. Uh, What did you think about that approach?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I I would be stunned if they didn't make it. I I said from the get-go, remember, I was on the commission and I took a lot of heat for um, advancing this proposal, which the commission adopted and was ultimately taken and verbatim um, adopted and made into law so that we raise the the threshold, and I believe in, in that, and I think it's uh, it's good. I think it's good government. It's good politics. Um, but the the long and the short of it, at that time, I said the WFP is going to survive. And I said the Conservative Party is going to survive. But all the rest of them, they've got their, you know, their work cut out for them. You have to, you have to establish that you, you have the support of at least 2%. I mean, that's such a small number. 2% of the voting public in order to be what's called a permanent party and have, have the ability to keep your, your line permanently on the ballot. Always have a place on the ballot. If you can't demonstrate that 2% of the people want you, then I don't know how you, you deserve it. Then, then, you know, anybody should be able to permanently have a line on the ballot. You know, that's ridiculous. So I think the other parties are going to have a tough time. I think the Independence Party, which in my view, and I've said it from the beginning, is a sham. I think it's a, it's just a, a fake a fraud of a party. Most people think when they read it that those are independents with a T at the end, independence, but they're independents, C-E. Uh, they don't realize that this is a party stands for nothing. You know, the Save America, whatever it is, uh, movement, <laughs> uh, a new party. It, it just is. It just doesn't exist as a real functioning unit. Um, a Green does, uh, but I don't know if they'll have the support. And then there's Libertarian, and, and there are you know a few other contenders for that. But I think the WFP is going to do just fine. The concern I have, and the only concern I have about that, what they're doing, is when they're they're telling people to to vote on their line because they are worried about their survival, and I don't blame them for doing it, they're spending about a million dollars to do the campaign. What I'm only worried about is that people will vote for Biden on their line, and then go across their line, vote for each of the candidates on the WFP line. Now, in almost all cases, those are Democrats, that's fine. But the WFP did not endorse every Democratic uh, candidate, and some are in tough races. So you got Jim Gorin, for instance, in SD5, who's in a very tight race may lose state senate race up here on the north shore of long island being attacked over bail reform and the rest he doesn't have the wfp line so it's conceivable that people who vote for biden on the wfp line go across all the way down ballot they'll skip they'll, they won't see any candidate you know in that space and just won't vote for that and won't get, you know, just go on and he'll lose those votes that's the only thing that concerns me other than that listen you know, they, they should be uh, campaigning. That's what a party is supposed to do.
1: Do you, do you consider them a, a legitimate political party, though? I mean, uh, you know, there, there's a school of thought because they almost always cross-endorse the Democratic Party that, that the WFP is not really a legitimate political party. What do you think?
2: Well, I, I think that the defining, the defining answer to that is that both the Working Families Party and the Conservative Party which also, the conservatives almost always endorse the Republicans. Both of those parties have very clear, specific, philosophical positions. That, to me, is the crux—the first element of of being a real uh, party, all right. And I think they 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 meet that. I, I don't uh, I don't disagree with them on that. And in, in most issues, you know, I agree with them, <laughs> frankly. Uh, but. You know, sometimes, you know, they they have more extreme ways of, you know, wanting to move their agenda than I, I would. But for the most part, you know, we agree philosophically. So I, I think that's fine. The fact that they endorse almost always Democrats. Well, you know, again, a, a, I believe a political party uh, should, you know, be proposing its own candidates. But that's all about fusion voting. And as long as the state maintains the... Um, ability to allow fusion voting, fusion voting, for those who don't understand it, is that in New York state, which is one of the only states in the country that allows this, a candidate can run on more than one party line. So what they do in New York is you fuse the votes that, uh, for instance, Joe Biden gets on the Democratic line with the votes that Joe Biden gets on the working family line. And Joe Biden gets all of those votes fused together to determine, you know, who wins the election so uh as long as you allow fusion voting where you can run on two different lines, then i don't see why the w f p or the conservatives for that matter would change course you know in the day or when the day comes when you you can't you have to run candidates uh, of your own. Well, it'll be a different story, but in the meantime, I would say without question the w f p is a legitimate you know a party on a political sense they mm-hmm. they represent you know, issues that are important to a, a certain constituency. There's
1: no question about it. And uh, Jay Jacobs, chair of the New York Democratic Party, before we let you go, one one final question, and we appreciate all the time here today. Um, Jarrett mentioned getting a, a mailing from the Working Families Party with Elizabeth Warren on it. You got a little bit of heat this week um, for a Democratic Party mailing where you're using images of uh, Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to – suggest to people, you know, voting Democratic all the way uh, down the ballot when both Sanders and Warren are encouraging people to vote on the WFP line. Um, What what isn't the message? Wasn't the message there clearly, um, you know, meant to sort of counteract this push by the WFP to, to rack up their votes?
2: Well, again, you know, here again, the WFP is running a campaign that's all about the WFP. We're running a campaign that is concerned with our down-ballot candidates. And we have always run campaigns that say vote Row A all the way. That's not new. Voters have heard that for decades or as long as we've had Roe A. And so, you know, that's what we did. And somebody said to me, well, did you clear it with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? No, I didn't clear it either with Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, whose pictures were also on there. You know, I made the assumption, and I don't think it's a silly one, that you had both of those candidates vying for the Democratic nomination, both of those candidates endorsing the Democratic candidate, Joe Biden, and I would assume that both of those candidates would endorse, as I believe they do, Democratic candidates up and down the ballot. Well, except that WFP.
1: you knew that they were encouraging people to vote WFP for Biden and Harris, right?
2: No. I mean, now I do, but I I, I didn't know they were taking an active role in uh, doing that. And I don't think this in any way attacks them. This is not about that issue. I'm not arguing that point. The WFP wants to be in that argument. This is one of the things I take issue with them. I I made the comment I think they've got a self-image problem. Everything is about them. And really, I think what an election is about are the candidates that you're running for the offices they seek to be elected to, not which party you're voting for them on and the rest. My concern is, down ballot, I want everybody voting Democratic. Mm -hmm. And what I don't want, as I mentioned just a moment ago, is people picking a different party, uh, the WFP uh, as an example, and then voting on their party line and skipping over other candidates. And there isn't just one example. There are numbers of examples where you have good Democratic candidates in tough races that are not, not going to be picked okay. because they're just not on the WFP line. And that's where our concern is. And and frankly, you know, we had one mailing that had um, Bernie on it and uh, Elizabeth Warren on it. And, you know, that's about it. I mean, there wasn't okay. that one particular mailing.
1: Okay. Well, we, we we noted, and we appreciate that uh, that thought and and all that you've shared with us today. And we appreciate all the time, Jay Jacobs. Thanks so much for for taking it here with us today.
2: Well, thanks for having me. I'll
1: all take right. Take again. care.
2: Bye bye now.